Hello, everyone. Welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and I'm glad you're here. As I try to explain, this podcast endeavors to explore um, spirituality in its fullest sense, which, as my teacher's teacher, Manindra, used to describe, um, he described Dharma, or the, the, the path of the Dharma, as living the life fully. And as I shared in a recent episode, we recently lost our dog, Ozzy. And um, this talk that you're about to listen to um, is my response to many of the responses I've received from the Sangha um, and from listeners in support and in sharing your own stories of grief, uh, loss, death. And as I've been listening or reading mostly reading the stories that have come in, I keep coming back over and over in my own mind to the story of a, a woman who lived at the time of the Buddha, and, um, and her name was Kisa Gotami. And uh, the tragedy that struck her life and how she responded to that, that's the story of the mustard seed. It's a very famous story. But what I want to um, try to tie together in this talk is that Kisa Gotami's story, a very old story, um, perfectly matches or parallels the structural narrative of one of my teacher's teachers. That would be Deepama. Uh, Deepama was Jack Engler's teacher. Jack was one of my kind of root Dharma teachers. And uh, Jack spoke about her all the time. So I, I feel like in many ways Deepama was, is a spiritual grandmother definitely a spiritual ancestor, but I, I feel like her, she's like a spiritual grandmother to me. And, um, and I was been rereading her book, which I'll include in the show notes. Uh, it's a wonderful uh, book about her life and her teaching. Um, but I was in rereading the book, I was just overwhelmingly struck by the parallels with Kisa Gotami's life. And I'm sharing both of these because I am, right now, I am in the middle of experiencing tremendous loss um, and fear of loss, fear of death, not just through the passing of my dog, but um, as you'll hear, some of the circumstances in my extended family. Um, and I just know how alive many of these themes are for so many of you right now, or have always been alive for you, I should say. Maybe I'm just waking up to it now. But um, my heart feels very open and uh, vulnerable, but also rooted in the Dharma, the practice of the Dharma, and the uh, potential for freedom within all conditions. So uh, this is really an exploration of what does it mean to live the life fully, and what does it mean to live the life fully with intimacy? And that's a, that's a, a, a quality quality of intimacy that I'll be exploring in this talk. So uh, it's not an easy talk. This is not for the faint of heart, as one of my teachers used to say. Um, but I hope it serves your practice. I hope it serves your life. And I hope it um, helps you realize the Dharma in your own life. So may all beings be free. May all beings be uh, safe and protected. May all beings live free from all forms of suffering. Without further ado, here's today's Story and talk, Kisagotami and the Mustard Seed.
welcome back. Uh, we're here for our sort of early morning or top of the week Dharma talk, Dharma reflection, practice session, sort of setting the tone for our week. And just to pick up from last week, you know, if you missed it, I think you, most of you are here, but last week I was sharing um, about losing our dog, Ozzy, and going through the, the cycles of grief with that. And um, <clears throat> I shared over the, we shared over the newsletter on Friday last week, uh, just a, a bit of a eulogy for him. And um, I guess what I want to pick up on is that, uh, first off, we're well, we're okay, we're good. You know, uh, we, we feel very, we feel like Ozzy's life was a complete story and we don't have any regrets and it went beautifully and we're grateful for his joy and presence that he brought to us. But in, I think, if I can speak to it this way, what I've observed is that in opening up to my quote unquote vulnerability around losing him and the, the rawness of emotion that has blown through our hearts in light of his passing. Um, and in sharing that, I, I am incredibly touched. We both are, Terry and I are both incredibly touched and I want to use the word riveted, sort of held steady, held fast, riveted by the shares that have come back and the responses that have come back in the Sangha. Um, touching on personal encounters with grief on your end or on the Sangha's side or individual members of the Sangha. Stories, yes, involving pets. Stories involving parents, aging parents, dying parents. Stories of children that have been lost due to illness of one form or another. And there's something in the collective in, in, in there's something uh, about the ability to come together and grieve that offers a kind of medicine and i want to speak to that medicine or try to speak to that medicine right now after one particular tragic share from the sangha i my mind immediately remembered a very famous story in the Buddhist canon, early Buddhist canon. Um, or I should say, technically, and this is the, the, the lightweight scholar in me, technically it's not in the canon of, of what is called the, the Pali teaching, meaning it's not in the original canon, but it's in, technically this, this story is from the paracanonical teachings, sort of the outside of the canonical teachings, outside of the, the main teachings. Um, and it's in a collection of, of teachings known as the Teragata, which 
is referred to as the verses of elder nuns. Verses of elder nuns. And this is a opening a, a broader theme that I'll be continuing to look at, which is a, a, a personal interest I have now in um, how women articulate their awakening and their experience of the mystical uh, union. And there are very vivid accounts, uh, particularly in uh, medieval Christian mysticism of women just having extraordinary insights about the nature of reality and nature of love. But from the Buddhist tradition, there's a story of about a woman named Kisa Gotami. Kisa Gotami. Kisa was her given name. Gotami was her married name. And the story begins with Kisa Gotami, or Kisa being born to a, a family of poor origin, low status. And at a very early age, Kisa was married into a more well-to-do family, a richer family. But within her, her married family, uh, she was ridiculed. Uh, they called her Skinny. That was her nickname, Skinny, or girl of a poor family. And she was ridiculed partly because of her, her skinniness, the family felt, her, her married family felt would make it difficult for her to bear a child. And at this time, uh, a woman was expected in the first year of marriage to provide a child, preferably a son. So these are the conditions that she was born into and married into. And uh, as the story goes, early in her marriage, she did get pregnant and she had a son. And with the arrival of the son, her status within the family changed because she had, in a sense, performed her quote unquote duty. And I'm not putting any value. I'm just reporting that as the story holds it. But as she delivered a son, uh, the family that she was married into, the Gotamis, started to respect her more, gave her more, uh, more, uh, Showed her more kindness, I guess. But one day when the son was playing, and the, the story doesn't really detail what happened, but one day while the son was playing, some accounts running to and fro, there was a tragic accident. And the son died. And Kisa was beside herself with grief. I read many different translations of this, and um, there's often a sense that the, the, the English translation is that she, she experienced a grief madness, or she, she was just so inconsolable that she was grief crazed. And in many of the, the tellings, she 
was fearful that her husband and the husband's family would take the dead body and place it on the charnel ground for the funeral pyre, for the, for the, um, blanking on the word, when a, a body is burned to death, uh, I can't even think of the word for some reason. I know it's right there. How strange. You can all think of it, I'm sure. But to, so she took the body and carrying the body on her hip. And I mentioned that there's a detail that was in the story of carrying the body on her hip. Um, the physicality of that specific, specific detail, uh, particularly in light of just over a week ago, having to move my, my dog's dead body and feeling what a body is like when the spirit of life or the chi is gone and how much heavier and impossible and difficult to move. So Kisa's carrying her dead son's body on her hip, going from door to door in her village, asking anyone and everyone she can ask for medicine to revive her son. She can't accept the fact that he's dead. And every place she goes to um, either is bewildered and doesn't know what to say to her. Like, what do you mean you want medicine? There's no medicine that can bring your son back from the dead. And in going from door to door, one sort of wiser, caring soul suggests to her, she said, you know, there may be a man who has a medicine, has some medicine for you that can help. That man is the Buddha. So Kisa seeks out the Buddha and she explains her plight. She explains her grief. She says, talks about her son dying. What medicine can you offer me? And the Buddha says, I think I can help. I think I can help. But in order for me to help, you'll need to go into the village again. And you'll need to find one mustard seed. And mustard seeds are very common in traditional cooking in that part of the world. But they were also part of uh, kind of the herbal forms of medicine, a pharmacopoeia of medicine that was used in Ayurveda. So the fact that this holy man, the Buddha, was saying one mustard seed can help, gave her incredible hope, incredible hope. But the Buddha said there's one small caveat, and that is you need to find a mustard seed from a household that has not experienced death. You can find one mustard seed of a household that has not experienced death. Come, please come back. So, filled with an, a, a kind of a 
you could say a magical optimism. You might even say a deluded optimism. But filled with that optimism, she raced from door to door, thinking it couldn't be that hard to find a mustard seed from a household that has not experienced death. And so she arrived at the first household and said, do you have a mustard seed I could have? And the answer was, yes, of course we do. We could lend you a mustard seed. And we're talking an infinitesimally small little seed. And then she said, but before you give it to me, has your household experienced death? And the response, as you might expect, was, oh, yes. Uncle so-and-so, sister so-and-so, father so-and-so, mother or child. We've experienced death. So on to the next household she went. And this went on and on and on. And in her tour, in her search for a seed from a household that had not experienced death, she heard story after story of loss and grief and pain. And in hearing the losses and grief of others, the story recounts it that her mind cleared, that her grief became manageable. And it became managed or manageable because her heart of compassion opened to the truth that everyone will face. And she returned to the Buddha in great gratitude. And he said, have you found the mustard seed for me? And her answer was, I have resolved the matter of the mustard seed. I have resolved the matter of the mustard seed. And that was really all that was said. The next action she took was to request ordination as a nun in the Buddhist, in the Buddhist teach, in the Buddhist lineage. And as this ancient story goes, in a very short manner of time, she became fully enlightened. She became fully awake and was recognized by the Buddha as an arahant, that is one who is fully awake, freed of all suffering. And what, what struck me about re reconnecting with the story is that it can sound like a story from a long, long time ago, a few thousand years plus ago. We might not have a sense yet of what full awakening, full freedom might mean or be like. But as I was reflecting on the story, uh, what came back to me was how similar, almost to the exact structural details of the, the, the narrative, how similar the story of 
Kisa Gotami was to my own teacher's teacher. When I say that, this is part of the, the lineage that I recognize as spiritual ancestors in my practice and, and as an extension of our practice. So the, the teacher that I refer to as my teacher is named Jack Engler. And Jack often referred to his two primary teachers um, as being a, a, an Indian man named Munindra and an Indian woman named Deepama. And Deepama was a student of Manindra's originally too. So, but the, the part of the story that parallels Kisa Gotami's story is, is the story of Deepama, who I've mentioned here a few times. Like Kisa, Deepa was born into a low-status family in Bengal. She was married early at the age of 12, swept into a new life with a new family that wasn't very welcoming, didn't like her very much. And within the first year of marriage, around the time she was expected to deliver a son, her husband was sent abroad to Burma for work as an engineer for a few years. And so she was left back in India for those first two years of marriage with the in-law family. But eventually after two years, she gets brought over to Burma too. She's in a new country. She doesn't speak the language. And I won't go through all the the twists and turns of her very fascinating life, that's all cataloged in the book called Deepama, The Life of an Extraordinary Buddhist Master. Um, she was eventually able to give birth and two of her biological children died. And her parents died. And then her husband died. And with all of that grief, she, her own health, her own physical health was, was not doing well. And so in a state of extreme illness and kind of just despondency for the amount of grief she'd experienced, she was finally able to pursue kind of a life dream of hers, which was to practice meditation. She had been raised a Buddhist. She knew lots of teachings by heart. She had a great amount of faith in Buddhism and the Buddha, but she had never really practiced. And through the deep experience, and this is how Jack explained it to me, because Jack, my teacher, Jack, uh, when he worked with her, he knew her story very closely, but he also knew the story of her students, householder. She became the known, in, when she went back to Calcutta, um, this is after her period of intensive practice in Burma, 
um, and the part I haven't I left off so far, I apologize, is that in doing intensive practice in a very short period of time, similar to, to, to Kisa Gotami, Deepa, Deepama, uh, experienced deep levels of realization. She was identified as a uh, highly attained master and was invited to teach at the center in Burma, which is extremely rare for a lay person to begin with and even more rare for a woman. But eventually, she, uh, life circumstances brought her back to Calcutta, where she taught uh, in the old part of Calcutta in a very small, very small, humble, fourth-floor walk-up apartment without running water. And Jack would say how the, that small bedroom that she had was just always packed with students at all hours. And there'd be a line out the door of people coming to see her. And she was known as the, the, patron, the patron saint of householders because she taught primarily to um, housewives, women who, who worked within the household. And what Jack would recount to me was that those of her students that had experienced the most physical, the most worldly suffering, seemed to have an accelerated path under the watch of Deepama to their own realization of the Dharma. So in these stories of Kisa Gotami and Deepama, there seem, I hear, I see, I recognize a maybe call it a spiritual truth or a, a truth about the process of waking up. That tremendous suffering can devastate for sure. And it nearly took out Deepama, nearly took out Kisa Gotami. I know many of you may feel that it, the suffering you've experienced has nearly taken you out. And I can relate to that. But through presence, holding steady to what you're feeling, to what is alive in your life, to looking very closely. The Dharma can often reveal itself in the most challenging, fearful, and terrifying circumstances. And so from my share, my personal share, I, I just want to say how hearing the shares that you've brought to our hearts 
about loss in your own lives. I've, I've tried to say this at various points over the last few years, but it's exceptionally poignant now how much I, I can sense hearing and understanding what life is like on your side has opened my heart in a way that I, I can't begin to describe. And what I, um, I am, I'm going to have a little hard time talking about right now is that last weekend was the first, this not this most recent weekend, but two weekends ago was the first weekend after Ozzy had left. And prior to his departure, but prior to his death, um, I had scheduled with my mother to bring my niece, my eldest niece. I have three nieces that I love dearly, but my eldest niece, um, who's seven, my mother was going to bring her up to visit. She hadn't been to Maine before to visit us here yet. And, you know, after Ozzy died, my mom said, are you okay? Will this be okay for you guys? And I said, no, no, this would be a welcome, um, welcome infusion of energy. You know, change of presence and, and joy brought in. And, um, and that's what happened. My mom and seven-year-old niece came just for a short visit. Um, but Terry and I, Tried to prepare everything as, as best we could with top 10 kid-friendly meals and lots of games. I've been teaching my niece backgammon. Um, and we played hours together. And it was a perfect visit. They went home, went back to Massachusetts. Um, but over this last weekend, I got a text from my sister that my niece was sick. She was vomiting and not feeling well. There, there was fear that she was going to get dehydrated. And my, my sister's family was visiting her husband's aunt in New Hampshire. So they had to take my niece to the, the ER in Concord, New Hampshire. And, and nothing was really determined at that visit and she went home but didn't really improve and and was getting more nauseated and still not keeping anything down so i know you're probably all wondering where we are now and where we are now is that my sister had to take her to the er again yesterday where they did a early MRI, or they did an MRI and found that there was a tumor in her brain. She was rushed to Children's Hospital in Boston and a better MRI showed exactly where it is and now she's scheduled for later this morning for a surgery to have the tumor removed and I know nothing beyond that. 
And I was already planning to tell you about Kisa Gotami long before I heard about my niece. And I suppose I, I feel I, there's, I want to be careful. I always want to be careful with personal shares because First and foremost, I believe that practice is a space to be with your own experience. But what I'm finding is that the tenderness and vulnerability and honesty and compassion that you are sharing your experience with us is helping me in ways I can't, again, really articulate in holding my experience. And so I don't know how to conclude. I don't know how a talk like this concludes. But I'm grateful. I'm grateful for all of you. I'm grateful for the Dharma. I'm grateful for the conditions that brought us together, that brought me to the Dharma, brought you to the Dharma. And maybe just to conclude with <clears throat> a phrase I've heard off and on over the years, a phrase that I think it's in the Tibetan tradition where they say, practice like your hair is on fire. That's hard to do for me. But the idea behind it, the spirit behind that is that death is certain, the moment is uncertain. That's the elephant in the living room. Death is certain. The moment is uncertain. And in some ways, if our practice isn't oriented to that truth, if our, if our practice isn't facing that truth, we can practice in a way that might be analogous to moving pieces of furniture around in the living room. And by that, I mean just repositioning things, reposturing things, trying to get the state of things to be a little bit more to our liking. But in the acceptance of death, in the acceptance of the inevitability of death, the heart, what happens to the heart? The heart, when it doesn't flinch from it,
the heart can become intimate with the thing it fears fears most. And that intimacy is not obviously sexual, but intimacy is an experience that um, in some ways seems to be the, the feminine expression of awakening. There's a, an old story in the Zen tradition of a, a nun who attained full enlightenment and the master said, simply describing it, he said, she became intimate with all things. That intimacy is coupled by a complete breakdown or dissolution, dissolving of any sense of separation. And I'll be speaking about intimacy more, the tenderness that comes with intimacy, the care and compassion as part of intimacy. But I, I'm, I'm mentioning that word in particular <clears throat> because it, it balances or unites the energies of non-clinging, non-attachment that we often hear about in Buddhist and yogic circles. The suffering is caused by attachment, so let go of attachment and you won't have any suffering, kind of the way it's often presented. But in my experience, and so I'm speaking from my own practice, my own experience is that over-idealizing non-attachment and trying to, in a sense, cling non-attachment as a teaching. I've experienced that as a barrier to intimacy. And as a friend and member of the Sangha <clears throat> shared with me you know, over a phone call, he said, and that's when I spoke to this, he said, yes, in intimacy, real intimacy, you can't cling. can't be intimate with something and cling. But you are incredibly close as, and present and awake to what's happened. So, inspired by Kisa Gotami, inspired by Deepama, inspired by many of the female Christian mystics who you'll hear more about soon. I would like us to consider intimacy as a theme this morning. What is our practice <clears throat> inviting us to be intimate with? What is the experience of intimacy like? How is it nurtured?
How is it sustained? And what comes with it? What grows with it? What develops with it? Okay, again, not an easy talk for me, particularly in the context of my niece's recent diagnosis. Um, uh, I'm still just, as I'm recording right now, I'm waiting for updates from Children's Hospital in Boston. And I don't know what the next few days to weeks to months look like uh, for all of us. But um, thank you for all your support. If you'd like to join the Sangha, if you'd like to practice yin yoga, qigong, or yin yoga and fluid yin yoga and meditation with me and Terry, we welcome you. We have a growing, very heartfelt, open community uh, that supports practice for students and teachers of yin yoga. So if you'd be, like to be a part of that community, there's a link for you in the show notes for the Riverbird Sangha memberships. And um, I look forward to seeing you or talking to you soon. So stay tuned, and I'll be back at the end of the week. I'm going to actually deliver or finally publish a conversation on the yoga of grief. Um, it's a part two of a conversation I had with my late friend's mother, Donna Brooks, who's really made grief central to her somatic practice and yoga teaching. But stay tuned for that. And uh, once again, thank you for attention. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Take good care. Stay safe. Keep practicing. And I wish you all my best. <laughs>